As you probably know, October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And to celebrate, InfoSec is giving away a free month of its InfoSec Skills Platform. This is a subscription-based skills training platform for cybersecurity experts. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, please go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast. And don't forget to claim your free offer before October 31st. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast. Each week I sit down with a different cybersecurity industry thought leader to discuss the latest trends and how these trends are affecting the work of InfoSec professionals, as well as tips for those trying to break in or move up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Our guest today is Dave Farrow, Senior Director of Information Security at Barracuda, an organization that strives to provide businesses with cloud-enabled enterprise-grade security solutions. But he didn't start there. His career journey uh, began as a software architect at Pfizer, followed by VP of Engineering at Yosemite Technology, then Director of Engineering at Barracuda. So we're going to talk today about making lateral moves from other tech areas into the security field and what drew him and what tips and tricks he might have for listeners that might want a similar career change. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so tell me about, a little bit about your unconventional career journey. Uh, I assume you were always kind of a big fan of computers and tech, but uh, sort of walk me through the, the steps along the way. Sure. Oddly enough, I, I was not a big fan of tech. I spent really? most of my childhood either building models, mm -hmm. cycling through the hills behind Ventura County, or uh, in, the, in the ocean off Ventura surfing. Hmm. My father nice. gave me a, a Commodore 64 when I graduated from high school. Yep. And I'm ashamed to say now that uh, I never really played with it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, wow. okay. so, no, I, I backed it. It didn't imprint on you as it did for some of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look back now and I, I'm, it's kind of a shame to say that that was, that was my background. But, uh, sure. but no, I, uh, I started out in college as a speech communication major. I okay. went to uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for one quarter and realized there was not nearly enough math in that. And so I started over again and I chose electrical engineering, computer science, because it was the thing that made the least intuitive sense to me. And I was, I was intent on learning something at school. And, uh, and so I went off to do that. Um, the school that I went to, uh, we were, I guess, kind of snobs about being electrical engineering, computer science students. And we felt that if you were a CS student, it was only because you, you couldn't make it as an electrical engineering, computer science student. Hmm. And so at the end of college, when I had the opportunity to learn computer science and get paid for it, I thought, I think it might be foolish for me to pass that up. And so I really fell into it, fell in love with it immediately and thought, how did I ever, ever miss this? I, uh, I had one gig uh, during that time. I think my second year uh, in the industry, I did one hardware-based project and I spent most of my time looking at catalogs and said, not interested in this at all. Right. And uh, so I got into software and I've been in software ever since and I've, I've just absolutely loved it. Okay. Um, so going through your bio, you started out as, as owner of Pharaoh Enterprises. What, what is or was that? Yeah, that was a, that was, I would say that was an act of defiance against the aerospace industry. Okay. Um, so I <laughs> wow, started that's out. A, that's a great lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started out working for, for TRW uh, straight out of college. They were the ones that said, hey, we're going to take a risk on this guy that doesn't know software because... Now, their theory was that if you had an engineering discipline background, they could teach you software. Okay. And uh, so, you know, three years into that, we experienced what every aerospace industry or uh, company does. There was a, a downturn. And, uh, you know, rather than lay people off, they, they were mandating five extra hours of overtime a week for a dollar of extra pay. Hmm. And uh, the guy running our, um, our division 
uh, challenged anybody that could find a better deal to do so. Hmm. And so at that point in time, I, I stepped out into just contracting. So Fairway Enterprises was just the name of, of the, you know, the umbrella under which I did contracting work for the next several years. In, in what, what kind of contracting work was that? Well, I did uh, program contract programming work for a ton of different industries. I did everything from work with telecom uh, to work in the bingo industry hmm. um, and, and, and a lot of stuff in between in a lot of different environments, did some data warehousing, um, a lot of different uh, languages in that process. You know, my only real requirement during that time for a contract was that there'd be at least one new technology that I could learn in the process. I'm I'm so curious to ask more about the bingo industry, but I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> it was it was a, a fun time. Um, I was actually building a bingo calling desk. Oh, and they made it very clear that that was the gas pump for their business, and their business was selling paper, and that that bingo calling desk was going to sell paper. Oh, so man. think of it as a you know an online video game. No, it's part of right. video king. I I challenge you to write a book called An Act of Defiance Against the uh, it was it the air, uh, air, air, aeronautics industry and have a chapter on the uh, the bingo industry. I I will be your first customer. All right, I will add that to the list. Okay, so uh, in two thousand three, you became software architect for is it Fiserv? Fiserv. Oh, Fiserv. Uh, so was that a direction you had been? It sounds like you were sort of previously pursuing that, but uh, what, what pushed you further into that direction and, and what interested sure. you? Yeah, again, it was an unconventional path for me. Yeah. It was actually a logical extension of what I was doing at the time, right? The contracts that I had been taking were uh, generally senior development kind of architecture level gigs up to that point. But at that time, uh, the dot-com bus was going on and I was living in Denver at the time uh, and had a lot of small children at home. Hmm. And when, uh, when the dot-com bus sort of hit, and actually right after 9-11, uh, the, the contract I was on was winding down. Uh, Christmas was coming. Didn't really want to go look for a new gig right then. And so, uh, you know, I, I submitted uh, my resume on monster.com mm -hmm. for a gig in Fresno, California. And if you know Fresno, you know there's almost no technology here. Yeah. Okay. I submitted it in Fresno because that's where my family, my wife's family is from. And I said, hey. You know, I want to look like I'm looking for a new gig. Uh, how about we, we go spend six months out there with your family? And, uh, you know, for anyone that, that actually interacted much with, with uh, Monster at that time, it was impossible to actually reach a, uh, uh, a recruiter. Right. And yeah. through a, an odd series of events, I, I, I dug up a phone number and they picked up the phone. And uh, I saw that as sort of being ordained that, that we were going to get that. So I actually moved out to Fresno to do a six month gig and uh, have been here ever since. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so um, from, from there, you became uh, VP of engineering for Yosemite technology for six years and then director of engineering at Barracuda for another seven. So, uh, you know, engineering is clearly in your blood, but right. in 2016, you became senior director of information security at Barracuda. So what, what brought about this massive career change or was it even a massive career change or was it a fairly intuitive so, jump to go from security to engineering that way? Right. So it was an evolution, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, what I discovered as a, as a software architect at Fiserv was that there really are two primary things that I needed to be doing. One was uh, communicating the vision to the team to continue moving the architecture forward. And the other was developing the architecture. And uh, I met, through a social engagement, the founder of Yosemite Technologies, and we were comparing notes, and he had the same problem. So I joined Yosemite to, to solve one of those problems for him so we could each wear one hat. Okay. And 
that's really sort of the story of, of my career. As we, as we went through our, our journey with Yosemite and eventually got purchased by Barracuda, um, Barracuda purchased Yosemite Technologies in order to roll the technology we were developing into another product, hmm. right? A cloud-based backup product. Okay. Right. And at that point, I, I set about looking for, for other um, ways to add value to Barracuda. And along the line there, um, as, as, I, as I sort of watched over the, the sort of the end of life of the software only product as it moved into the cloud product, um, one of the things I identified was that, that some of our key engineers were managing our bug bounty program. Oh, yeah. And that was distracting them from actually developing our products. And so I thought, hey, this is something that I can help with. I'm going to administer the bug bounty project. And that was how I started into that project. Um, I started into the security world. I began uh, handling the incoming bug reports. There weren't a lot of them at the time. It was right at the beginning of the bug bounty craze. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we discovered here is that, that right, well, this was at late 2012, that um, sort of a, a confluence of things came together. Um, one of which was, paying out some bounties that probably didn't need to be paid out, uh, responding to reports uh, sort of more promptly. Uh, and what happened was we ended up getting, uh, seeing a sharp uptake in our bug bounty program. And that eventually caused me to, to bring in some, some folks that were much more versed in security than I was to help manage that program. And, and over time that program has expanded basically to, to start pulling all of the independent security activities that were going on in the company under a single umbrella. Hmm. Okay. So that, so your, your security department basically started with a bug bounty program. Our centralized department yeah. did. Yes. You know, it, we, we, we were doing security activities and we're a security company. So there are a lot of guys right. that are okay, that very conversant in security and they were doing those things sort of independently and they weren't there. No, it was nobody's primary job. Right. Right. And yeah. Okay. So that's that, that's that point where, yeah, security is not yet a really a full-time job per se, or that aspect of security. Right. And so, so I was the guy that, that, that sort of came on board and said, all right, um, it is, it needs to be full-time job. Uh, we need full-time jobs here, here, and here. And so this, this move was really an extension of the, you know, the setting of direction and the building of a team that I was doing at Yosemite. Okay. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the sort of the wild west days of, of these sort of bug bounty programs. And, and I mean, cause you're, you know, when you're, when you're talking those years, you're, you're talking about sort of the start of, you know, I mean, obviously there's always been security issues, but this is like really the sort of ground zero of like active security issues where people are sort of like making right. things, you know, rather than just, Oh, there's a, there's a hole in the hole in my bucket, you know? Right. Right. So, um, so you know the part that I, I remember sort of most clearly was, was the day when when it feels like it was like a watershed day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd been handling I don't know a dozen or so incoming reports uh, a month of varying severity. You know, some cross-site scripting attacks here, some click-jacking reports there, and and I realized you know I need to do some some tooling around this, and uh, we had a very well-defined scope of. Uh, of activity uh, and someone sent in a report related to I think our our website and uh, I, I looked at the report and it was actually a meaningful report there was actually real real value to us it was it was I, I believe it was a persistent XSS and right. so you know it mattered and I thought look I'm, I'm gonna just be a decent guy and kick this guy a few bucks mm-hmm 
didn't understand that that few bucks meant a lot more to him than it meant to me. Right. Okay. And probably within 45 minutes, I think all of his friends knew it and were, were just going nuts on our website. Yeah. Testing <laughs> so, every inch of the wall and yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, well, they, um, um, the, the scanner at that point we hadn't really uh, anticipated that someone was going to throw an acunetic scanner at our lead generation page. And so they generated like 40,000 leads in Salesforce. Wow. And, uh, so that was probably the, the ugliest incident in the wild west. You know, the, the other part about the, the wild west when we were managing our bug bounty program ourselves was we got a lot of colorful characters in there. I'm not going to drop any names though, though I would really like to. Okay. Um, but when I talk with other people running their own bug bounty programs, we, we do compare some names and they go, oh, man, you got that guy too. Oh, yeah. There's one guy that, that threatened our wives and our fa- and our daughters um, because wow. you know, we, we wouldn't give them a bounty. Um, lots of rude folks. But on the flip side of that, um, one of the guys that, that works on my team now, I met through that program. Um, you know, he, he rang our bell really hard for a, a few days. And in self-defense, I said, hey, would you be willing to jump on a Skype call with me? And, um, I'm going to, not going to drop his name either cause he likes his anonymity, but, uh, sure. um, that has turned into a very fruitful, um, fruitful relationship and, and has been really instrumental in, in developing my security knowledge. He's introduced me to a lot of folks in the industry. Um, so, you know, my experience through the bug bounty program is there are a lot of really top shelf white hat folks out there that are providing tremendous value to companies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear about, you know, Am I opening or writing an open check to the internet? Right. Um, and, and our experience has been, it doesn't have to be that way. You can, you can manage that. Um, and you know, the, the key thing is, is if, if you're, if, if you adopt a position of being a good partner with these folks, um, they, they do respond as good partners uh, mm-hmm. in return. And it's been a huge, hugely positive process. I will say though, that, that, uh, the guy that, that, uh, I mentioned that is on my team now introduced us to bug crowd. Okay. Make a shameless pitch for bug crowd. They got us out of the business of trying to pay people across borders, which was really the hardest part about managing that program. And they deal with a lot of the the difficult personalities for us. And that partnership has made the bug bounty program extremely valuable to us. Interesting. Um, Okay. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's a, that's, that's really interesting. And that sort of ties into things that we've, talked about in previous episodes specifically that when you're young and you have knowledge, but you don't have experience that, you know, doing bug bounty for companies is a good way to sort of get your name in front of them. If you can demonstrate that you have decent, you know, people skills and communication skills, they might want to jump on a Skype call with you. Right. Right. You know, and the the guy that I, that I hired into my team was actually not in a, an application security role when I hired him. Hmm. He was he was doing you know network security and and some incident response, and he wanted to be in application security. Security he wasn't sure you know how he was going to get there. So you know that relationship we leveraged into a lateral move for him. That's been probably more valuable for us. Well, it was valuable yeah. for him too, but it's been a just a wonderful collaboration so far. Okay, so let's talk some some more about lateral moves here. So, what are some of the connection points between engineering and and security as as careers? What were some of the overlaps in your engineering skill set? Uh, you know that that applied to your cybersecurity roles. Sure, sure. So, um, I think 
I think engineers, especially software engineers that, that want to go into security have one leg up on people that are getting in. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before I even really got too far into security, I could explain conceptually how a cross-site scripting attack worked. Mm-hmm. I could explain right. how a, a command injection worked or a SQL injection worked. I could, I could understand that because I had coded those kind of errors all my life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I knew what a buffer overflow looked like. I didn't understand necessarily exactly how to exploit that, but I knew what it was okay. and I knew why it was bad. Right. And so that took a lot of the learning curve out. Um, on the flip side of that, there's an enormous gap in reality between being able to explain a cross-site scripting attack and being able to exploit one in real life. Yes. And okay. so I can't stress enough the value of actually finding ways to practice exploiting them in real life. Okay. Any tips on that? Uh, yeah. Online uh, challenges are a great way to do it. There's a, okay. one of my favorite ones I started when I was beginning was a thing called w3challenge.org. I remember just beating my head on the wall of the, the, the very first XSS challenge. Actually, it was the first SQL injection challenge. And I knew, I knew exactly what the injection point was. Mm-hmm. And it took me hours before I realized the, the lesson that I will never forget and that I'm not going to give away here because there's value in actually learning that. Right. Books. Yeah. No hint books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but there's no, there's no substitute for taking that conceptual knowledge out of your hands and putting it into the keyboard yourself. And there's just, there's no shortage of, of opportunities to do that online for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's one of those things that I think people mistake is that, you know, that if you, if you know, or even if you know out of a book that, you know, I know how to do this cause I read it in a book somewhere, but like the actual trial and error of, of like, you know, fiddling the details until the thing actually happens right. is is where you learn right 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 the second the second thing that uh, well and I said that that software engineers have one leg up mm-hmm. the, the leg that that was sort of missing for me that uh, well actually I, I did have a bit of a leg up on that as well networking knowledge is really really critical right and I had written client server uh, programs as a matter of fact I started out at TRW writing um, client server programs, you know, kicking it old school, writing it in C, writing the servers, you know, forking and execing and and all of that old stuff. Um, But again, that was very limited perspective of of how networking worked. You know, Mm -hmm. it was from one piece of the puzzle. Um, You know, any engineering work that you do to understand how networks actually operate and how to move through them is going to be very valuable in the security world. Okay, so let's sort of uh, you know flip the foreground and the background here. What are what are the benefits of having engineers in a security space? What is, what is what are some things that an engineering background can bring to a security department that people classically trained, if you will, in cybersecurity don't have? So um, I actually don't look at it quite that way. Okay, right? I, so they're more interconnected. So um, I believe that that engineers are central to our security program. Okay. Right. All of our, our security in our products and services begins with the engineers themselves. At least the way we've organized our practice here, I and my team don't have any actual permissions to change anything. And that's by design. Mm-hmm. The, the, the guys with the hands-on responsibility for keeping things up and running and for developing these things, they have the responsibility for, for fixing things. We are here in an advisory capacity to say, here's what the things we found, here's how you fix them, but they need to do them. And so... Security knowledge has to be baked into engineers 
from the very beginning. It's, it's it, security and, and software engineering and, and DevOps to me are like uh, sanitation in medicine is. Mm. Everybody has to know how to sanitize their hands and their equipment and their environment. Right. So mm -hmm. if you've got someone who's a security or a software engineer that wants to go into the security practice because they want to move into that, they add value because they speak the language of the people that we need doing the most fundamental security work. Mm -hmm. And they can bridge that gap because security guys, they don't they don't talk the same way that software development guys do. Right. And they're not really tuned in to uh, the pressures that a developer has to deliver features. They're not necessarily tuned into how the build and you know CICD process works, and they, they're learning those. But I hear sometimes myself and other folks on my team or other security researchers saying, "Why don't you just do this? Because you just <laughs> yeah. fix oh, it yeah. by doing this." Right. I had a very interesting um, conversation with uh, O.J. Reeves a few few months ago. Um, he's also known as the Colonial. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Hmm. He's responsible for much of the development of the Meterpreter, the Windows Meterpreter. Oh, right. Yes, yes, of course. And he is telling me he's, he's actually got a, uh, uh, he's live streaming the development of a native CLR implementation of Meterpreter. Mm -hmm. And he's doing that. It's, he's like 50 or 60 hours into it. And, and he's a wonderful teacher, mm -hmm. wonderful, um, wonderfully articulate man. And he's doing this uh, partially to communicate to the security folks how hard software development actually is, mm. right? The answer yeah. to why don't you just do this is we have constraints that you might not be aware of. Yep. So he's bringing all that discussion into the live streaming of this uh, new implementation of Meterpreter. I'm very excited about it. I've only watched a few hours of it, but uh, it's great stuff. Oh, that's great. Yes, and that, 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 that clarifies it nicely for me in terms of, uh, you know, I used to work in publishing and, and so you have the, you know, the, the, the editors and the art directors, you know, as sort of butting heads because, well, I, I need this specific thing, which is completely at odds with this thing that you need. And my deadline is one week and yours is three weeks, but you want yours sooner so you can sit on it. And right. So there's all these, there's all these sort of, and, you know, and as you know, companies get larger and larger, your, your roles get more and more sort of subdivided into, you know, you're doing this one specific thing without really knowing what the people in the cube next to you are doing. So, right. Right. In my experience, you know, most security teams are fairly small, mm -hmm. right? And there's yeah. a, there's a temptation to feel like the company isn't investing in security, but that's not the case. The investment in security is spread out among the engineering teams as well. They have, right. there's an expectation that, that security is being built in, in the process. Right. And so the security team really needs to be focusing on, on pointing those development resources and those DevOps resources at the most impactful things that they can do. And so anybody that's moving out of a, a, a software development or a DevOps role into a security role brings a capacity to translate between these worlds, which right. is enormously valuable and very hard to teach. Yeah. And, you know, as we've said in previous episodes too, like there needs to be, you know, baked in security in, in the, in the board level and at every level, but especially at the engineer level. So, right. Um, so what are some security issues that you're working on at the moment and what are some interesting solutions you've come up for these problems? You know, uh, you know, Barracuda, you know, the, the, there are a couple of things that are top of mind for us right now. People continue to be targets. Mm -hmm. right? So, so, um, you know, we're, it, we, we do pen testing on a regular basis mm -hmm. and, you know, I always feel great that the, that the pen testers never, 
never crack our perimeter. But the reality is they're not really trying to crack our perimeter because they're trying, it's much easier to get a human to make a mistake. Oh yeah. All right. So that's, that's one, uh, one key thing that, that we're really focusing on. It's not high tech. It's not super sexy. And the reason we're focusing on it is, is because it's not high tech. It's not super sexy and it just works right as an attack. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we really have to focus on, on protecting people. And, and so security awareness is a, is a big thing that, that we, that we focus on. Um, the other thing that I'm hearing a lot of chatter about in the, in the different uh, people I talk to in the industry is a real growing concern about uh, supply chain attacks. Okay. Um, and uh, in particular, given the privileged place that our products sit in a lot of our customers' environments, our developers are very interesting targets. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, of cool new vulnerabilities to watch out for, um, one of the, one of my members of my team, uh, just recently gave a, a talk called the Ides of March, uh, about, uh, you know, demonstrating a, a, a fully, uh, cross platform out of the box exploit for popping shell on uh, a box, just providing you with a malicious VS code, um, project. You open the project and bam, he's got shell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so those types of attacks are things that that we worry about. So we're, you know, given the amount of open source that's out there and the difficulty of of really investigating what's in all of those things, um, that's something that that really sort of keeps us up at night. And I don't think we have a good solution on that yet. Okay. Um, but but security awareness seems to be probably one of the most important things that we need to be driving. And I don't mean just uh, around phishing, but yeah, also, don't, yeah, don't click the link. Yeah. Right. But, but also, you know, awareness among our development teams that, that, uh, you know, poisoned repos are, are actually a thing, you know, what, and, and engaging them in the conversation about what, what do you look at before you, you open one of these things. Hmm. Okay. Oh, so is it, yeah, that, that's a much wider definition of security awareness than we we're, we're used to hearing. Right. That. Right. I mean, I think, I think everybody in the organization has some component of security that is relevant or, or, or specific to their role. And, and so our, a lot of our job is, is as I see it, is communicating in a, in a way they can digest what ways that someone might be trying to take advantage of them and what they can do to protect themselves. Uh, so, uh, moving back into the sort of career frame here, and specifically the cybersecurity frame, we mentioned that you know obviously you've made uh, what I thought were kind of big career ch- changes, but it seems like they were they were fairly you know sort of they, there's there's a natural progression in them. But uh, for people who want to make a lateral move over to cybersecurity from a related or even a semi-related f- uh, field, what are some tips that you have for them in terms of things to learn, experiences yep. to have, uh, certifications to get, things like that? Yep. Get busy doing security is, is what I say. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, uh, my journey has had some big shifts in it. Uh, right. did follow a, a, a somewhat logical progression. Um, but you know, there are members of my team. I can, I can point to a handful of them. One, one of the guys, one of my, my best, uh, best team members who's moved on now, uh, was watching water pump out of a ground, uh, out in the central Valley when I hired, he had a civil engineering background. Mm. Um, Another guy um, came up through our tech support and sales organization. Uh, another guy I met as a, a barista at the local tech incubator. Wow. And my son had an office there and said, hey, this guy's good with computers, right? 
And, and all those guys are now successfully making a living in the security industry, right? And, and we all, we took the same route with all of them, right? In particular, the, the guy that was the barista, this is, this is sort of my favorite story. Um, my, my recommendation is jump in to the online resources that are available, the online challenges that are available, and try them. And the offer that I make to the people that I know personally that I come in contact with is um, connect with me. I usually say over hangouts, but connect with me over, over some kind of media where we can, we can chat. I'll send you some links to some challenges that I started with that were meaningful for me. If you get stuck, let me know what you've tried and I'll give you some ideas about where to look next. And, the people that have come on to our team as a result of that are the guys that latched onto that and did it, right? Um, the, the, the guy, the Brista, a guy named Connery, sitting in the Knox office right now. I remember the time when I decided that I was ready to bring him in uh, and, and actually have him make the lateral move. Um, he was working on a particular challenge on w3chals.org.com, uh, and uh, he was stuck, and it was one that I had had a hard time with as well. And so I asked him a few questions over Hangouts. You know, what do you try? And he had tried all the right things. Okay. Tell you what, maybe think about this idea. And that was, I don't know, 930, 9.45 on a Saturday night. I woke up the next morning and there was a message on my Hangouts room at like 2.45 in the morning with the flag. And it just said, there's the flag, right? <laughs> and that is what I'm looking for. As a, as a security practitioner, the people that are successful are the ones that, that get the bug, mm -hmm. that demonstrate tenacity, because it's an extremely frustrating field. Yeah, right, right yeah. And, and, they, they, and they demonstrate results. And you can do that, as someone looking to make a lateral move, you can do that by, by working through the boxes on Vulnhub. Right. You can go to, to root the box. You can go yeah. to... And you can go out and, and if someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to get into this, I'll say, what, you know, what of these have you tried? Do you play any capture the flags? Do you go to conferences and, and do like the wireless hacking village? You, know, you don't have to, to do that professionally for me to be interested because the relevant skill for my team is not what schooling background you have. It's can you think creatively are you tenacious and is your Google food good? The rest of it we could teach, right? right? The other thing I'm looking for is, is can you actually think critically about risk and can you communicate? Because ultimately that's what we're about is, is we, we don't have enough context in our team to understand the opportunity costs that are lost by saying, stop what you're doing and fix this bug. We have to talk about how likely this is to be exploited, what the impact is, and we feed that into the business leaders and we enable business decisions. We, we are a business enabler and our job is to ensure that we're not surprised by risk. And so those are really important soft skills to have as well. Okay. Can you, can you expound a little bit on, on thinking critically about risk? Like what, what was that, what does that involve? What kind of skill is that exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, do that with this story. Do you remember that, that story that came back a while ago that someone said, Hey, people have just published this tool called Modlishka that, that wrecks MFA. Oh yeah. Okay. You remember that? Mm -hmm, a little bit. Okay. So they're like, yes, by MFA has totally been bypassed with this Modlishka thing. And I thought that's really, really interesting. I need to dig into that. So I, I, I dug in and I read further and uh, I haven't played with it as much as I would like, 
I think it's a super cool tool. Really impressed with what these guys have done, but it totally does not break MFA. Hmm. <laughs> that is a misleading headline. Right. Yeah. It makes it sound too easy. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't break MFA. You, the essence of Modlishka is it's a man in the middle attack and it makes oh. it way easier for somebody who's looking to, to, to socially engineer someone into giving up creds, right. To, uh, and, and to man in the middle of someone to set up that attack. And I, it's tremendously valuable for people that do this like in pen testing, but MFA isn't fundamentally broken as a result of that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the critical thinking that I'm talking about is the ability to take one of these reports, to read through it, to understand how it works, and to assess mm. what is the essence of what's broken here. Right? The essence of what Mabushka, um, uh is exploiting is, is a man-in-the-middle attack. Right? And, and you know, at that point, it, it, will, it can actually mimic the, the MFA prompt as well. Or, you know, it, it, it actually sort of acts like a gateway to the thing that you're attacking. Um, and I'm not going to try and explain it all here. No, no. Okay. No, but that, that does help sort of clarify the concept of, of you know, critical thinking in terms but, of, but, but, you know, our job is to look at, okay, there's a thing here. Yes. A attacker can do a thing. How is that going to affect the confidentiality, the integrity or the availability of the things I'm responsible for protecting? Mm-hmm. Right. And in, and in what way and what mitigating controls are there that could be put in place, uh, other than fixing it. Fixing is, is too disruptive to, you know, what's going on right now, right? Those are the types of decisions uh, that we need to bring to our development teams so they can factor those into all of the other pressures that they're getting from the business. Okay. Um, so, we, you know, obviously we've, we've emphasized, uh, you know, hands-on experience is a primary thing that you're looking for and critical thinking. Um, are there any roles uh, in your mind for certifications in terms of considering cybersecurity positions? Are there any certs you recommend for people, you know, is it, yeah. is it the sort of thing that you, you start doing things hands-on and then you sort of seek the certs when you hit, hit walls or need to learn things on no, a different level? That's, that's the way that, that I recommend doing it. Um, refer to previous comment about EE snobbery. Right. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, uh, when I started thinking about what certifications I needed, um, you know, where I sit, I would say that, that I should have a CISSP and that's on my roadmap to do this year. Okay. Um, and I think that, that, you know, in certain roles, that type of accreditation is really, really useful. Mm-hmm. I believe that some of the, the more entry level you know, networking certifications are good because they, they do provide foundational networking knowledge. Right. Um, I wouldn't necessarily hire based on that, but they're, they're, they're valuable to have. Um, I have one certification. I have the OSCP. Okay. Someone shows up with an OSCP and I'm, I'm going to want to talk with them. Right. Yeah. Um, Why is that? What, what is, what, what's in there specifically that you, you so, see demonstrates value? Um, the, the requirements to get the certification is a hands-on practical exam. Okay. Um, you, you get access to a private network uh, for 24 hours. There are five machines on there. And you, you get a pass or fail based on the flags that you, that you get. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you've got 24 hours after that to write a pen test report. And they judge you based on what boxes you popped and what your report says. So there is no fool in that. I mean, there's some, there's some concern about people um, cheating on the exam by having somebody else take it for them. Mm, but okay. the exam is as rigorous as it can get to demonstrate 
that you have the basic mechanics of doing a pen test. Now, I don't ever anticipate being able to use the OSCP directly in my profession, but the, the things I learned through actually popping boxes in the OSCP transformed the way that I think about risk and the way that I reason about risk in that critical thinking. So the hands-on actual exploitation is really, really important. And a certificate or you know, certification that will, will give you that hands-on training, not just checking a box or, or taking multi, uh, uh, multiple, multiple choice, choice exam, mm -hmm. right? Those, those will impart a certain amount of knowledge, but actually being able to reason through and articulate in a report to a client, this is the chain of things that I exploited to gain complete control, administrative control of this box. And here are ways to mitigate it. There's, in my mind, there's no substitute for that type of preparation. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so as we wrap up today, um, tell us anything else you'd like to about the work Barracuda Networks is doing in the security space. And, you know, if we want to learn more about Barracuda or Dave Farrow, it sounds like you have a fairly open, uh, open email policy. If people want to ask your advice and things, uh, how can they reach you? Absolutely. So they can, they can always reach me at my, my Barracuda email address at uh, dfarrow at barracuda.com. I'm happy to answer questions there. Um, Wow, what do, what do I want to say about Barracuda? We're, we're in, in all things IT security, mm -hmm. right? Our goal really is to deliver, uh, create and deliver innovative security products that are easy to buy, deploy, and use. Our model is your journey secure, right? So if you want to learn about what things people are securing, I would say check out the types of things that we sell. And, and if you're not familiar with what those products do, that would be an indication that you might want to go and learn about that class of product. Right, because each of them solves a particular type of, of uh, attack point, right. and and I would encourage people to go just maybe look at our catalog and say what what on there sparks your interest, and then dig into that, dig into how you might attack email, right, mm -hmm. or how you might you know attack um, an application uh, or a web application filter, right. Um, I'm not saying you know go after our stuff. If you want to do that, we have bug bounty programs. But um, what I am saying is. You might use that to orient you to the space if you're not familiar with the, the types of things that, that are um, that are available to attack. Okay, and the website again is? Barracuda.com. Okay, and you are dfarrow at barracuda.com if people want to get in touch? Barracuda.com, yep. You can hit me on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I am I am not a social media <laughs> being, so you, you can yeah. search for Dave Farrow on, on LinkedIn and, and feel free to, to reach out. Please <laughs> let me know that if you're reaching out, that you're reaching out. your contact in four to six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't generally take uh, invitations from people I don't know. But if you tell me you heard about this from the podcast, oh, I'd be happy to respond to you. Okay. Well, Dave Farrow, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you all today, as always, for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com and type in "cyberwork with InfoSec" for our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search Cyberwork with InfoSec in your favorite podcast catcher of choice. Uh, and to receive a free month of our InfoSec skills subscription-based uh, teaching platform in honor of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast, uh, or click the link in the description, and be sure to claim your free month before October 31st. Thanks once again to Dave Farrow, and thank you all again for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week.